Herb Alpert in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. You might know today's guest from the pages of Fangraphs or Beyond the Box Score, or perhaps from MLB Network's Clubhouse Confidential, hosted by Brian Kenny. In either case, you know him to be a handsome Italian gentleman by the name of Bill Petty. And what follows, Petty and I talk at some length, discussing not only the Mets of Petty's youth, but also later in the podcast, the current iteration of the Mets, and what it's like for Petty to live as a Mets fan in the greater Philadelphia region. We learn about Petty's academic training in political science, generally speaking, and more specifically, international security, and what analytical tools those disciplines supply that may or may not be useful in the analysis of baseball. Along the way, we touch on some of Petty's research interests, including work on park factors, pitch-type linear weights, etc., etc. It's handsome Italian, Bill Petty. It's Fangraph's audio. And it begins right now. Okay, so this is why, for example, when you've been at, at least one of the times, or it was pointed out expressly to me, um, when you were on uh, Clubhouse Confidential with, with Brian Kenny, uh, there was a sign that said Philadelphia in large letters behind you. Yes, so um, the first time I taped something for Clubhouse Confidential, they actually had me go up to the studio and to caucus. Um, I think more than anything, it was also, um, you know, it was more like a tryout. It's easier to kind of get to know somebody if you can get them live in the studio to see, okay, is this somebody who we want to have on again, or we'll give it a shot and kind of say thank you and let them go on their way. Um, so I went up there, I taped it. Uh, that segment didn't run for about three weeks. Um, they had to you know, kind of find the right show, I guess, to fit it into. Um, but afterwards, they said, you know, we'd love to get you in the regular rotation, which is great, except, you know, I live an hour and, you know, 40 minutes from Secaucus and have a day job, and, you know, I, I can't just take off to Secaucus whenever I, I you know, am asked to. Um, so I, so they arranged to have me tape a number of the segments remotely in, in Philadelphia. Um, so, yeah, I did a couple at a studio in Philadelphia, and that's, you know, 10, 15 minutes from my house, and... I did one actually on the field at Citizens Bank Park, um, just because you know it was much more convenient to do those. Otherwise, I couldn't have been on the show as much as I was if I did this at caucus every time. Yeah, and I will say that um, I plan in post-production to isolate all of um, the times that you say the word psychocus, um, because you have it. You say it brilliantly. You say you should win a N- Nobel Prize for pronouncing psychocus. Uh, where where is Secaucus? Is that is that just outside the city? Um, yeah. So if you're heading up uh, the New Jersey Turnpike, I'm trying to remember. I think it's um, can't actually remember. I think it's like exit 14 C. I mean, if you're heading to New York, and I think if you're taking the uh, um, ah, gosh, it's the Lincoln. Well, you know, one of the tunnels. I think if you're heading to the Lincoln Tunnel, um, it's not too far from there. All right. Um, and, and the studio, MLB studio, is literally right off the exit. Um, so it's. Um, and what's the name uh, of the town again, Bill? Sebacus. Yeah, there it is. Love <laughs> it. It's excellent. Um, no, but no, so part of, uh, and I don't know if this is irony, or I'm sure there is a dramatic. Uh, there's, a, I'm sure there is a, a literary term for it, but there's something rich 
about you um, doing interviews from um, Phil, a studio in Philadelphia or perhaps even um, more so right from Citizens Bank Ballpark because you are a Mets fan. You are a dedicated Mets fan. This is true. Um, yeah. It's a little painful. I'm, I'm not going to lie about it. Yeah. It's a little weird. Um, well, this all started a long time ago, right? So, you know, the fact that I had to do, um, you know, which is fantastic. You know, I never in a million years would have thought I'd be on television talking about baseball. It, you know, it's not exactly something you ever stop and think you'd be doing. Um, so, but of course, to do that, I ended up spending most of my time talking about baseball from areas of Philadelphia. But the only reason I did that was because I now live down here, um, because that's where my wife is from. That's where she grew up. Um, and we got married when I was still in grad school at University of Pennsylvania, and you know, we sort of settled here. And you know, a number of years later, two kids, you know, third on the way in a few weeks, we're, we're pretty much settled. So not only did I have to talk about baseball from, you know, Philadelphia and from Citizens Bank Park, but I live here. <laughs> and I pretty much have been living here through one of the worst stretches, uh, or one of the most recent bad stretches in, you know, Mets history, and one of the best stretches in Philly's history. So it's it's painful and, I, I guess, ironic in a number of ways. Yeah. And how did you get to be the, uh, a Mets fan? I mean, I assume that uh, given your accent and merely the fact that you're a fan of them, that you're uh, you're from somewhere in that area. I am. Well, is, it, I, is the accent is it really that bad? Is I mean, it's amazing. I love it. Uh, I'm not. I have no problem with it. I don't understand. I don't understand why why anyone would complain about it. I, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this on a loop. This just your half of this recording and just go to bed to it tonight. If is that if that's not weird for you. Um, no, it's probably fine. Okay. Yeah, no, but you, with it. you grew up in, um, you, you grew up in, in New York, New Jersey, something like that? I grew up in, um, northern New Jersey, but not northern northern New Jersey. So, um, I grew up in a town called Scotch Plains, which is, um, probably 40 minutes from Manhattan. Um, it's in Union County. It's, it's not... It's, you know, and, and I mean, I hate to use this, but if people are trying to locate it, Scotts Plains is probably 20 or 30 minutes south of most of where the Sopranos are shot. So if you're looking for kind of the deep, deep, you know, Jersey accent, northern New Jersey, what I think people stereotypically think about, that was about 20 or 30 minutes north from where I grew up. Um, but uh, my family, particularly my mother's family, was originally from Brooklyn. Okay, so they and, they they moved out yeah. in a southern southerly direction. Yeah, my my I'm trying to think. I guess I think my mother, maybe when she was nine or ten, the family moved out of Brooklyn um, to Scotts Plains. But then my grandfather um, owned a hardware store in Manhattan for I mean just you know, for decades, um, and that was sort of the, the family business. So n- no one lived in Brooklyn any longer. But you know, when I was growing up, you know fourth and fifth grade on Saturdays, I spent all day at the store in New York as a stock boy, so I kind of grew up, you know, at least one day a week I was in, you know, I was in Manhattan, you know, kind of, you know, getting fully, uh, you know, uh, you know, getting a full taste of my, you know, my roots. Right, uh, yeah. yeah. That, now, that's, that's like a great 
blue collar story to have at the ready uh that you worked as a stock boy in in what your i don't know is it your italian grandfather's hardware store in the city yeah yeah pretty much yeah it's, you it's kind of nice one to, nice to pull out yeah that's yeah that's good especially with your kids well kids let me tell you how it was in the city when i was young living growing up in the city now wait your kids though oh that's hor- are they uh are they phillies fans then or are they mets fans so this is a, a battle that I'm currently waging, um, only because, so, for the most part, I think I've got them focused on the Mets right now. The difficulty, though, is going to start because my daughter just started school. You know, she's in preschool, you know, four-year-old preschool. Next year, she's in kindergarten. And everyone, just about everyone in the class, including the teacher, is a big Phillies fan. So, you know, and now my daughter's playing t-ball and, you know, every, every one of the coaches has got a Phillies hat and a Phillies shirt. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, this is ground zero for, you know, Phillies fandom. So I am a little worried that it's going to become harder to, you know, get her to, you know, rage against the machine, as it were, because, yeah. you know, there's the peer pressure. Everyone else is going to be a Phillies fan and she's going to be, you know, wearing the, you know, the orange and blue. So I, I'm hopeful. But, you know, you have reason tough. to doubt. I mean, and my, yeah. Well, in my wife's family, they're all Philly fans, you know, and, and that's that's where we live. We live five minutes from my wife's family. You know, all the uncles, all the you know aunts, cousins, everyone's a Philly fan. All the, you know, there's a lot working against me here on this one. Do you, so, does that ever become, uh, does it ever get tense at a, a, a reunion or, you know, like a family gathering situation? No, no. I mean, it's you know, there'll, there'll be some some good natured you know, ribbing here and there, but it's not a uh, you know, nobody is. I'm generally, and I try very hard to be conscious of this. I mean, you know, particularly when the Mets do play well, you know, I, I try not to be obnoxious in any way about it, mm-hmm. only because you know, it, to some extent, you know, it's it's you know, there's a lot of luck involved, and you could be good one year and crap the bed the next, which they often do. So, you know, it's fun, but I try not to be obnoxious anyway. And, and you know, no one, you know, my wife's family, who's a Philly fan, is, is obnoxious anyway. So, you know, we make fun of each other back and forth as much as you can, but it's, it doesn't get tense or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, right. And, of course, it's not like you're the one designing the team, I guess. You're not responsible for the roster construction. Uh, no. But you know, I mean, that doesn't often matter when you've, you know, you've got, you know, people that are fans of competing teams. I mean, there's a certain, you know, some people, I think psychologically, there's, it becomes part of their identity to the point where they, they almost think they're involved. Yeah, <laughs> or, no, that, you know, yeah right, that's it, true. it gets a little, it gets a little weird. Um, but yeah, no, I think everyone, everyone's pretty level-headed. So, you know, you, you endure a little bit of, you know, you get made fun of a little bit because your team stinks. But other than that, it's you know it's fine. So now, uh, in terms of uh, I guess defining uh, baseballing related moments, I, I, it seems like you might be. I'm 32. I'm going to guess you're a little bit older than me. Yeah, I'm 35. 35. So it seems like for you that 1986 World Series with the Mets would be right in your wheelhouse in terms of um, defining moments. I don't know if that's the big one for you. or If there's something else. Yeah, I would say that it is. I mean, I, I sort of, I didn't really start watching baseball until the 85 season. Um, so I was about seven or eight years old. And, you know, so it was a, I finally got introduced to 
you know, baseball and the Mets in particular and was sort of watching it and learning the game. And that was the year, obviously, that, you know, Dwight Gooden had, you know, one of the most phenomenal, you know, seasons a pitcher will, you know, will ever have. Um, and that's, that's what hooked me right there. Um, you know, the team was good and they were winning. They did, you know, they didn't go to the World Series for the next year, but, you know, 85 for me watching, you know, Gooden, you know, just put up just tremendous numbers and even without the numbers, just watching him pitch, it was, you know, it was captivating. Um, you know, he, you know, he threw extremely hard. The curveball was just ungodly. And I think it was also just his emotion. So, you know, nowadays we, we tend, and I, you know, I think as I've gotten older and, you know, we tend to, we like efficient, you know, deliveries, right? So not a lot of wasted motion. You know, guys who have efficient deliveries, are not, they tend not to be as wild or, you know, to potentially injure themselves. But if you just, you know, just watching, you know, Gooden, the leg kick, there was a, there was a, there was an artistry to it. And so I think that's what really hooked me. And then the next season, of course, you know, they go insane. They win the World Series. And, you know, that was fantastic. The problem I always tell people is, that's the wrong thing to anchor yourself to as a fan, as you know, as an eight or nine year old kid, right? Because, I, you know, first year I start watching the game, they're really good. The next year they win it, and and so you kind of expect like, all right, well we're going to be good, we, and we should be good every year. Like this is what happens, um, and clearly that wasn't the case going forward um, with the team. But that you know that still is the, you know, the, those two years really got me, I think, hooked on, you know. Not not just the Mets as a team identify with, but just in the game itself. Do, do you think that the, the those Mets fans who began rooting in the early '60s have a sort of a competitive advantage over you because they witnessed uh, sort of ab- abject misery, and therefore anything better than that is is really fine. Um, it's a good question. I mean, to some extent, you could say that. It's, it is easier for them to experience joy with the team because, you know, they saw the, you know, the, the worst of the worst. Um, but I also think it's, it's hard, it's hard to top 69 though, right? So, you know, 86 was great. You had drama, you know, it, you know, they, they almost lost the World Series. Um, however, they were phenomenal the entire year and they were really good the year before. They just, you know, just missed the playoffs. 69, it was a bolt from the blue. I mean, I, I think emotionally you can, you can never get, you know, that surprised and get that high again. So, I don't know, I think, I think it could go either way. Now, uh, it, it's generally the case I've found and um, that people who f- find their way to sabermetrics, and, and you actually seem, uh, and, and I'll compliment you um, in, um, with regard to this, you seem to be a sort of um, commentator who is able both to who has a handle over prose, um, but also has uh, some tools f- for analysis that that um, those things in tandem seem uh, work pretty well. I think you know both for your post and also for your, you know your your uh, television appearances. Um, I'm curious what besides baseball. So you have this um, you have this developing fandom for the Mets. Um, what else is going on besides baseball that that probably you know eventually sort of dovetails uh, with baseball to give you that interest in sabermetrics? What is your sort of your what are your nerdly interests besides this? <laughs> my, my nerdly interest. Yeah. Um, so, like when I when I got to 
college. Um, Which is where? I didn't start where, off. Where are you here? I went to I went to the college in New Jersey as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, um, you know, I guess it's technically part of the state school system. Uh, it used to be called Trenton State College, um, but the powers that be thought that from a marketing perspective, that wasn't the best thing to do to affiliate a school that um, is actually it was it was it's almost impossible to get into nowadays. Very 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 good, but it, it gave the kind of the name. You know, gave you the impression that you were going to school in the middle of downtown Trenton, which I don't know if you've been there lately is not exactly the best place to be affiliated with. Um, so they changed the name right when I um, started attending this college in New Jersey, um, which was 90, 96 or 97. Um, but when I got there, I didn't, I wasn't the best student to say the least early on. Um, just wasn't a, you know, things weren't clicking. Um, but then I remember I was a business major and my courses were boring and I just, you know, things weren't, you know, a lot of things weren't going, you know, smoothly at the time. And I remember I was, I was registered for a spring semester and, and just thought, you know, you know, something's wrong here. You know, maybe there's something else I'm missing. Maybe there's something else I'd be more interested in and would be a better fit. So I started going through the course catalog one day and I stumbled upon, um, uh, political science courses. And just reading some of the descriptions, you know, something clicked, and I thought, well, wait, this this is more interesting to me. You know, maybe this is what I should be doing. And I literally that afternoon deleted um, all of the courses that I was registered for that were business courses, filled up on political science courses, and, and went and switched my major. All, all in this one day. This is somewhat tasty. Oh yeah, just you know, well, I deleted the courses. It took me, you know, I put the request in to get my major changed, and I had to wait a day or two to see the. My one advisor, I guess, in the business school to say, "Oh, can I do this?" But I literally, you know, I, I just kind of burned the bridges you know, behind me and deleted all the courses, which you can never get back into, and registered for as many poli sci courses as I could. Um, you know, it's kind of a slightly hasty move, but I was, you know, I was a middling student to that point, so what, you know, what could hurt? Um, but I got hooked um, from from the first course I sat in. I mean, that it was just, it was great, um, and. From that point on, I became much more interested in academics, um, you know, and not just academics, but also just analysis, you know, asking you know, more and more questions and digging for the answers. And, you know, I think, you know, my interest in political science, it wasn't just the subject matter. It was just the fact that it felt more research-oriented than the business courses, where the business courses, it was very technical, it was very bland, it was sort of rote. But with political science, there was always, you know, you had to keep asking these why questions. They always popped up, you know. And so I think that it, that tapped into my curiosity quite a bit. And so that set me down a road where learning as much as I could about research, always wanting to ask interesting questions and, you know, never taking anything at face value. That, I think, combined with baseball. So it hit me later in life in terms of, you know, I barely knew who Bill James was, you know, until you know five six years ago. Didn't have a clue. Never read. Never read an abstract. You know, didn't. You know, had no clue about this entire world until you know a few years ago. But once I hit it, I think everything clicked. It all sort of came together. Now, what are the what are the things that makes um, um, baseball so readily available for analysis? Is that it's a turn based game. Um, and I, I, I guess, you know, probably with the exception of defense, um, measuring defense, which, of course, is still a bit of a frontier at this point, yeah. um, we're able to isolate 
events and were able to to um, understand, um, you know, in, in varying size samples, uh, were able to make certain statements about a player's talent, his true talent level, um, and and the the uh, the data for baseball really sort of serves itself up for that for that sort of analysis. I'm curious in terms of political science and and uh, maybe this you know this would uh, sort of facilitate a discussion of what your focus was within political science. Um, how friendly is the data in terms of its ability to be analyzed? Because it seems like you're dealing with, you know, if you're looking at a certain decision or a certain event, you're dealing with a, a lot of possible causes for the effects at which you're looking. I, I'm curious as to, you know, relative to baseball, how, um, how much can we know? How much can we know about the causes of certain things? Yeah, well, it's interesting because this is actually, you know, I, I left – you know, I sort of left the, you know, the academic circles a number of years ago. I was, you know, originally I was going to you know, get my PhD, and that's what I was going to be a professor in international security, and that's what I was going to do. And I, you know, have since, you know, left that trajectory and have on to other things, but, you know, still keep in touch with a lot of, you know, friends that are you know, still professors. And it, it's, this is actually still, depending on who you ask, this is still actually a big debate just within the discipline. Um you know, and there still seems to be a split where there are many people that say, um, you know, look, political science is not that different than many other, you know, disciplines or subject matter areas. So why can't we bring some of the same, you know, tools and techniques to bear when trying to analyze the causes of political behavior or social behavior? And there's a whole other camp that says, you know, to your point, well, wait a minute, um, you know, the subject matter is actually quite different. You know, you're dealing with people, you're dealing with ideas and psychology and, you know, a number of things that, um, if you just focused on, you know, statistical techniques with quant- with only things you could quantify, you're really not going to get at causes. There's, there's a lot more uncertainty in your conclusions than you think. Um, and so this actually is a big split within, within the discipline. Um, I'm, I'm a bit more agnostic. I can see both sides because on the one hand, there are lots of things that, you know, yes, they're not going to lend themselves to, um, you know, to, to more positivist or statistical, you know, techniques. Um, and you probably are going to miss a whole bunch of things. Um, but on the other hand, I, I think, you know, I think people kind of go too far in that direction sometimes. Um, you know, we can bring some rigor to the study of, um, you know, aspects of political science, or again, my focus is much more on international relations and international security. Um, I just think we have, we have to understand up front, you know, it's never going to look like physics. We're never going to get that, that good, you know, analytically just because of the subject matter, but we can get kind of close in certain cases. And if we're just upfront and honest with, with what some of the limitations are going to be, um, there's, you know, there's a lot that we can get done. I just, you know, it, it's tough. Um, we're never going to have, you know, a, you know, a safer metrics of political science. But for things like elections, think about all the data you have there. You know, um, you know, in, in certain economic data, there's a lot that you can tease out with traditional techniques. Um, that are fine. They're not going to tell you the whole story, but they get you pretty close. Yeah, and it seems like in any discipline, uh, even physics, because of course uh, physics, the 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 uh, world of physics was recently rocked. Uh, first, I guess, by a statement, uh, I forget the researcher's name, that uh, it was possible that neutrinos could be moving faster than the speed of light. 
Um, yeah. And then it was uh, the statement had to be I think, retracted uh, not much later because it had to do with some sort of uh, a cord being um, disconnected. Uh, you know, just yeah. sort of in the measurement. So I think even physicists would suggest that, you know, while obviously a great deal of rigor and, uh, you know, analytical tools can be applied to the subject matter, there's still always going to be those, that frontier. Um, and we feel it in baseball too, I think, right? And especially, and this is something that I've learned slowly, uh, and especially since I've been affiliated with Fangraphs and, you know, uh, been, um, Exposed to the numbers on a daily basis, and some of the some of the um, I guess the difficulties we have in trying not only to capture the data and present it in a way that um, is easy to consume, but also trying to couch it in terms where we have to, you know, remind the readers, remind ourselves just as much that that every you know everything you every stat you're looking at has like a certain um, I guess confidence level, right? You know, so we know, for example, that if you, you that if you look at a pitcher's strikeout rate, that's probably something that's going to become reliable after what, like 150 batters faced. But even then, we know that you can get uh, more granular than that. You can look at something like swinging strike rate, or you can even look, you know, even more granular uh, than that. And um, I forget uh, which of our writers did this, but just looking at you know, like using even pitch effects data beyond that and looking at, like, if you were to isolate the umpires that that, that pitcher had over those, you know, say 150 batters face. There's always sort of like another another level of intricacy and granularity that you can get to, but you kind of have to find those things, you know, when you're writing for a large group of people, um, such as Fangraphs hopefully is uh, on most days, um, you have to also be able to share... Um, share data that that's meaningful and can be um, included in a narrative. I guess is another part of it. Yeah, I mean, and that's you know it's tough sometimes because you know I mean I'm still feeling my way out in terms of you know what is the right the right pitch the right tone the right balance to to strike when it comes to you know prose and narrative and you know what kind of data you know do you use to support an argument um, you know. I mean, sometimes I think, I mean, part of this is just because, again, I mean, I think it's my personality. I generally like to, you know, you know, throw some stuff out there and, you know, see what the reaction is versus making very, you know, bold claims or drawing lines in the sand, assuming that I've, you know, I, I have this, you know, um, you know th- this idea is now completely wrapped up and I've proven it and, you know, this is the way it is. Um, and I think sometimes, Either I don't communicate that right, or people are assuming that if you're putting this out there, you've got to have it completely buttoned up, you know. And so, you know, I struggle sometimes with, you know, do I bother putting this out there? I've got an idea, I'm toying with it, I want to start digging into it a little bit. Um, you know, so here's the first pass at it: um, is the is the techniques that I use um, the best ones for this? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, you know, is the, you know, how reliable are the findings? Um, you know, if they're better than, you know, better than 50% chance, I may still want to put it out there again just to get feedback, but I think it's hard because you've got some folks in the audience that are fine with that. They like to see ideas being thrown out there and they'll get some feedback. But then you have other folks that are almost like offended, like, well, why, you know, wait a minute, you know, this is completely wrong. I can't believe you wrote this. You, you, know, you shouldn't even write this if you, you know, if you had, you know, if you weren't sure about it. And, and for me, I, I guess when I started writing in general, um, I started writing, you know, blogging 
you know, years ago that was much more in the political science, international security type of realm. And so the idea that, you know, you're using the outlet to kind of get some ideas out there, tap into the community, get feedback, go, you know, go back, rework something in kind of an iterative fashion, I've always, you know, that's more the way, I guess, that I've approached things. And I think, you know, in the audience, though, sometimes you have, you have, you know, two different sets of people, some that get that and some that don't want that at all. If you're going to put it out there, this thing better be buttoned up. You know, this is, you know, this is almost like peer review at this point. Um, so I do, I, I do think it's tough. Um, but, you know, for me, I always, I'm going to, I think, tend for the, you know, throwing stuff out there that's not fully baked yet, but, you know, hopefully getting some feedback to improve it. Um, but again, I think depending upon how you're writing, you're right. You're going to have to, you know, take different types of statistics or how far down, how far granular you want to get. Um, and it's a tough, it's, I think it's a tough choice for people sometimes. I want to get, um, to, to your, well, I guess all, all manner of baseball writing from you, um, in, in a second here, um, in particular, the stuff that you've been writing for the site. And I also want to, maybe we'll, we can fit in like, uh, 35 seconds to talk about the Mets at some point. Um, but uh, you, you mentioned international security, and it, now is this what you studied when you were at Penn? Yeah, so it, it was political science in general, but my you know, you've got certain sub areas where you focus, and certainly you know certain areas that you're going to you know if you do go on to you know you know going to academia, there's certain areas that you're going to focus more on from a writing and research standpoint. Um, and what interested me more than anything was you know the area of international security, so. You know, high level, it was a lot of, you know, interest around, you know, what, what drives states to make decisions to use force, uh, what are some of the impact, you know, what are some of the factors that impact whether or not a state will, you know, will be deterred, will believe your threats to use force. A lot of things in that area that were of interest to me, and, and that's right. I guess I spent most of my time, you know, reading, writing, researching, and if I had stayed, you know, that would have been the area that I was probably going to do most of my work in. Now I'm curious. Uh, uh, one of the things that I that I like about uh, um, Nate Silver's uh, website five five thirty eight is that right five thirty eight yeah five thirty eight dot com is that he he applies sort of um, you know tools of analysis to you know I guess electoral results right or um, poll findings and elect- and results um, and what it does for me as a as a reader. Is it makes rational and makes um, you know I guess makes a yeah I guess makes rational makes calmer um, a topic that is generally swirling around with debate right I mean there are entire cable news stations dedicated to obscuring the truth about about elections and uh, electoral politics um, now what in studying international security. Um, is there a similar effect when you when you're sort of on the academic side of it, or um, or I guess it wouldn't necessarily have to be academic; it could also be professional. But that it removes some of the hysteria from from those topics that might otherwise be quite heated in the public sphere or, or in media. Well, I, I think so to a certain degree. Um, there are times, and I, I can remember, you know, just you know, thinking back to grad school. You know, when you would have, um, you know, discussions about, you know, and this is even just when I was teaching too, you know, taking the abstract theories about, you know, you know what drives countries to, to go to war. Um, there's lots of different theories that are out there about that. And so kind of, you know, 
trying to teach those to, to undergrads and make them concrete by talking about specific, you know, specific wars or skirmishes that broke out. Um, there's a certain point where I think it does help keep the conversation um, more rational, civil, less emotional, um, but it doesn't always hold. I, I think, you know, there, there are certain, you know, there's certain topics or, you know, there's you know, certain conflicts where, you know, you can be as rational as you want about it analytically, but at some point the conversation kind of gets away from that analytical piece and gets more, you know, more into the, you know, more into, you know, the emotional and, you know, this person's good, this person's bad, their motives are good, therefore I can kind of put all this other stuff aside. And, you know, I've, I've seen a classroom go from high-level rational, try to, you know, just trying to explain why something happened to, you know, lower-level, emotional, heated, judgmental, sort of, you know, cable news network type of debate. And it's, you can kind of go, I can see it go back and forth within the same conversation a couple of times. Um, so I think it it helps. It can, um, you know. But you know, there there aren't many subjects that are more emotional than politics, and certainly, you know, I think inter, you know interstate conflict in particular. So I think there's there's, there's a limit to how much you know uh, an objective analysis of it can um, can repress that kind of conversation or feeling. And it's not to say that it's wrong for people to feel that way about conflict. I think it's perfectly natural. Um, but I think there's a limit to how much that can be, you know, set aside um, in you know, in favor of something that's more objective and analytical. Yeah, that that would seem uh, scary to me, to be to be the head of that classroom. I guess to to what degree? Because obviously, if there is some sort of investment from the students, that's something that you're always seeking out in a pedagogical situation, right? To to be able to hook onto something. But if it's something that that turns the conversation sour, that that seems like um, something you have to sort of uh, monitor as a, as the instructor. Yeah, no, there there is absolutely some moments where I, I'm, I'm sitting in there and it, you can feel it. You can feel the room kind of getting away from you and getting away from the you know from the more you know just kind of rational discussion. And you, you it, it, it's you know I don't know any any better way to describe it, but you, there's a there's a physical feeling that comes over you. It's like oh crap, this is about <laughs> to get really bad. <laughs> this is going south in a hurry. Um, and so I can remember just you know you know sometimes when you know you've got to you, you, you have to interject yourself and try to you know reset the conversation, move people into a different direction, and and not do it in a way where you're offending people that are beginning to get emotional because again, I think it's it's completely reasonable for them to get emotional um, about certain topics. But you've got to do it in a way that doesn't sort of point out to people like, okay, so and so is just getting completely crazy. Before they go off on a tangent, we're going to reset things. Like so, that was also the delicate thing, and it was a good learning experience to see how do you do that because um, that's one of the more delicate, I think, situations you're going to find yourself in. So that was you know it, it was. It was a good learning experience to, and you know, to have a chance to kind of, you know, have to go through that. Um, and with the subject matter that I was typically, you know, teaching, that's, you know, it's it's going to happen. You know, it's, it's, you know, usually multiple times in a week. <laughs> so. So it seems like you you had a pretty good foundation in um, analytical practices uh, before, uh, and I think you mentioned this before you you actually became invested in. Sabermetrics, or or had been, as you said, introduced to Bill James. Um, I'm curious as to at what point did that did those sort of things come together? Your um, 
your interest in, in um, um, your interest in baseball, and then your you know your sort of you already your your analytical foundations there. Um, so, so kind of late again. I don't mix it earlier, but I um, I had decided I had already made the decision to um, you know not pursue a teaching career in academia and make a transition you know to the business world and. Um, it was only after that that I even, you know, I finally picked up, you know, Moneyball probably, gosh, I don't know, 2007, 2008. Um, and, you know, I had some good friends that had already read it and it was always one of those things where they would, they would reference things. You know, they'd reference Bill James, they'd talk about Billy Bean and Moneyball. And it was one of those things where I didn't want to admit I hadn't read it <laughs> because, you know, again, you almost feel like, well, gosh, you know, everyone else has read this. I'm probably talking about, but if I haven't read it, they're going to think, oh, they got to, you know, not that you know, I have judgmental friends, but there's a, you, you want to make, you want to feel like you're fitting in. You don't want people to think like, well, you don't know what this stuff is, because um, they all assume that I did, and so, yeah, you know, so I kind of just faked it for a while, but eventually I picked up um, the book. I mean, and and oddly enough, for me, that was the entry point um, into. Into sabermetrics, and, and again, we, we we all know that there's lots of problems with the book, and you know, the the book is it's not a documentary. You know, you know, Michael Lewis, you know, he's not a journalist; he's a writer, and he's he's a fantastic writer. But you know, even with all the liberties taken, it was more just kind of a you push all the other stuff aside. The the, the base the basic philosophical idea of what they were doing and what was being described that instantly resonated with me. And once I read Moneyball. That sparked my curiosity to, to, I wanted to read the original material, right? So I wanted to start reading more Bill James. I wanted to, you know, I started reading, you know, lots of different, you know, websites and finding my way around just, you know, you know, just sort of, you know, randomly bumping into, you know, different concepts and, you know, discovering, you know, um, you know, Tango, everybody else. And so it, it happened really fast once it, once it happened, but, you know, it was, it wasn't too long ago that I sort of, you know, have my, I guess my my exposure to it. Um, well, it seems to me that I, it seems to me that you that it was using a lot of the same methods that would have already been familiar to you. A, a lot of them. Um, what was interesting was when I was in grad school, I mean, I had some basic training in, you know, econometric and statistical analysis, but it was, you know, I, I would say it was introductory. And for a lot of the work that I was doing, it was more qualitative in nature because you were dealing with Small, small end sizes. You were dealing with a lot of archival type of, of research, not necessarily, you know, you know, quantifiable information. And so, and actually, actually, in grad school, I mean, I had a I had a foundation in that type of analysis, but I didn't do a lot of quantitative analysis. It was much more qualitative. And so, I knew the basics, and again, just the philosophical, you know, the underpinnings of it, understanding, you know, how, how to determine if something is reliable and. Um, you know, thinking about issues of sample size and how do you control for things. But I didn't really start to do much in the way of actual statistical analysis until actually after graduate school. And so once I got into the sabermetrics, I realized, well, I've got to brush up on all this stuff now. Um, you know, looking back, it would have been great if I had been an econ major. Um, you know, if I had been like a Matt Schwartz, I, I feel like I could be so much farther along. Uh, and do a lot more, but you know, I, I had at least a familiarity which allowed me to do some stuff, um, which has been, you know, which has been helpful. Um, but yeah, I was I was much more attuned to more qualitative techniques just because my subject matter 
didn't lend itself to, you know, statistical analysis. Right. And then you wrote for, uh, um, I know that you at one point were beyond the box score. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that, is that where you started? Do you have a personal blog? No, that's, that, from, a, from a baseball standpoint, that's where I started. I was, uh, uh, one of my best friends, um, does a lot of really interesting, um, work with, uh, Little League in Newark. Um, he does, he coaches, uh, I think it's 12 to 13 year olds. And I guess it was the fall of 2010, he had asked me, because, you know, he knew that I was getting more and more into, you know, um, you know, into, you know, baseball and more, you know, I guess advanced analysis. And he just said, you know, he asked me, he said, you know, I don't know if it could apply at all, but, you know, I want to do something extra for my kids. You know, we've, we've kept meticulous statistics and I'm doing a year end review with them. I'd like to give them something different than maybe they normally get. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, you're talking about 12 to 13 year old little leaguers in like a 16 game season, right? So, you know, this screams, you know, every kind of small sample size warning you can imagine. And, you know, could you even apply these things reliably at that level of play? But I was interested and, you know, again, my friend who wanted to help me out. So, you know, yeah, send me the numbers and let me see, you know, what, what could be done. Um, and again, it was completely, you know, back of the envelope, just throwing it out there. Um, but it was neat because we found some interesting things to be able to, you know, to have him be able to go and, show the players and I created like scorecards for the kids and they were all heat mapped out. So it was real, you know, real obvious, you know, what they were good at and, you know, what, what, what they had to work on. And, you know, um, it, it, you know, for him, it was I me. Mean, he, from what I heard, I wasn't at the meetings, but he said it actually went really well. And, you know, in little league, as you can imagine, if you just put the ball in play, <laughs> your odds of getting on base increase drastically. Um, you know, we think, you know, the, you know, minor leaguers aren't that great at defense. You've got a higher batting errors on balls in play at the minor league level than the pros. Imagine what it looks, what it's like for 13 year olds. Yeah, what's it's the, really uh, BABIP? High. What's the BABIP for, uh, uh, well, I guess what's the error rate? Because what, like, I, uh, I think maybe about 92% of, of runs in the major leagues are earned. Um, I, I would imagine yeah. that some combination of, of errors and, um, the the defensive efficiency is what I'm trying to say is probably lower. Yeah, just 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 a tad. <laughs> um, and so what was interesting though was again it was like look you know this is you know you're taking all sorts of liberties with it, but it was pretty straightforward showing some of these kids again 12 and 13 years old when you actually put the ball in play you know look at how often even though it's an error look how often you end up on first base. And, and then having them look at that versus what their strikeout rate was. And, you know, and I didn't see these players play, but just looking at the data, I kind of, I gave my friend and said, look, if I'm looking at this kid, I think he tends to do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, in, in some cases it worked out pretty well. And so, you know, he had one kid that had a ridiculously high strikeout rate. Um, and it, was, it wasn't because he wasn't a good hitter or he didn't have good bat speed. He was just undisciplined. And Joe's like, I've been trying to get this kid um, you know, to, you know, to, to stop waving at balls out on the outside part of the plate all year and being able to show him, you know, look, I'm not just telling you that for the sake of telling you that. Look what happens when you don't do that, right? So if you, if you are able to drop your strikeout rate just a little bit lower and just put the ball in play, the odds of you getting on base increase dramatically. And the more runners we have on base, the more, more you know, the, the higher likelihood that we're going to score runs and it, it all kind of, it was, a, it was a nice little story that all fit together 
And I think having the numbers to support his story, for a lot of those kids, it clicked better. Um, and so, you know, this was like, <laughs> it's probably not the typical way that somebody gets into this, but doing that exercise, that's actually what hooked me more than anything. I was like, wow, this was kind of neat. Um, and so I, I was, I just had some idle time right before the Christmas holiday um, in 2010 and, you know, said, well, you know, let me just try my hand at this. And I, you know, had a, I put it in a fan post at the end of box score and, you know, Justin got in touch with me right, you know, almost immediately and said, are you, you know, have you ever thought about writing? You would like to write here. And I just kind of fell into it. Um, and it kind of moved pretty fast from there. And now, uh, and now you're incredibly wealthy from it. Oh, it's just the, the money is the end. You know, <laughs> there's, I know, I, I, I've got offshore accounts. It's, it's, it's a little insane. Yeah. It really is. I, I know how you feel. It's, it's almost embarrassing. I mean, certainly for me, having written for Fangrass now for, I don't know, two, three years, uh, I, it's more money than I know what to do with. You've got not one but two my box, I'm sure, right? I mean. What you said. <laughs> isn't that, isn't that the, like, the, the most expensive, like, car in the world or something? It's a uh, my box? Something like that? Is that what it is? Uh, maybe. A uh, uh, my box is definitely a type of beer that's available in Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, I was gonna say two my box. It's not that. It's not saying that much, really. Is it? But um, so uh, let's see. Well, I, w- I don't want to keep you much longer, but um, we have. Uh, you can go one of two places. Um, we can talk either about um, some of the recent work you've done. Um, I'm I'm interested in some of the Park Factor stuff. Um, also, you you submitted something that I think is probably falls under that uh, category that you were discussing earlier of sort of throwing it out there to see if it works. Uh, which is a pitch type uh, linear linear weight pitch type matchups uh, that you did oh, for right, the, right. the yeah. Miami Philadelphia game. That's also of note to sort of see what what the possibilities are that. Or we could talk about the Mets. So you you if this is a choose a Bill Petty choose your own adventure story unfolding before is your very eyes. Oh jeez. Um, let's talk about the Mets. Okay. Why not? Go with the Mets. Let's talk about those Mets. You uh, you're currently a Mets fan and. Uh, I assume that in recent years, knowing even more um, about uh, baseball analysis in all of its forms, whether it's on the field or, um, I guess, uh, you know, spending efficiently, uh, you've become more intimate with them. Now they've started off this season well. Of course, it's six games, but they're four and two, I think. Yeah, they they won the first four and then uh, dropped the last two uh, against the Nationals, so they're still in first place. Right. So that's yeah, a thing. Discount that. <laughs> That's a thing. No, That's I know. A thing. Um, now they do have uh, something they did not have all of last year, and that's Johan Santana. And I imagine that uh, that both you and the Mets are happy about that. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's looked you know pretty good um, coming off the surgery. Um, I think you know, I was watching the first game, and I mean it was clear his last inning. I mean he, he got gassed real quick. Um, you know, he, he pitched pretty well, but, you know, once he was, um, you know, once he was toward, he, he, he fell off real fast. So he, you know, his velocity started to drop and worse than that, I mean, his control just completely left him and it, it seemed to happen, you know, in all the second. Um, but then the last start against the Nationals, I mean, he, he looked a lot stronger. Um, they tried to push him over the 100 pitch, uh, over 100 pitches. And I think when he came back out, um, it was clear he, you know, he, he again he kind of bumped up against the ceiling, 
Um, you know, but he's he's looked pretty good. Um, my my concern, when I'm you know, still not sure about, but we'll see with him is, you know, he lost a little bit of velocity, but he's still got a really really good changeup. Um, you know, he, he he's displayed pretty good control since he's come back from you know, from the surgery. My concern with with Santana was, I think I talked about this on the one. Um, House confidential signing. Um, you know, he's become more and more of a fly ball pitcher in his later years, and you know, you know, the Mets moved the fences in and, and lowered the fences at City. So I'm, I was a little bit concerned to see, or just curious to see, well, how that play out with him coming back. Um, you know, I think a lot of pitchers probably did feel a little bit that they could challenge hitters more, be a little bit more fat in the plate when they were pitching at City because the guy did get the ball up in the air. Likely, you know, even if it wasn't caught, it wasn't going out of the park. Um, so I was cur- just curious to see how does he react, if at all, given that he's going to you know, have less velocity um, and uh, you know, he's going to have to deal with fences and dimensions that are less friendly to pitchers than they were you know, prior to, uh, you know, to, to last year. So you know, I'm encouraged. I mean, he looked pretty good. Um, see, the problem with it is, I mean, they're not going to contend. So it's a little bit of a tease, right? So, you know, he looks good, but to what end? I mean, it'll help them get fans in the seats. They'll get some revenue, which they're going to need, because that's obviously something they've been believing the last couple of years. Um, so I guess it helps them build, but um, it's just a little bit of a tease, because it would have been nice if he was had come back and he was healthy and they were actually in a position to, you know, Make a run for the playoffs, but that's that's a, that's unfortunately I think still a couple of years away. Now, a, a peculiar thing, I mean, you say they're not going to contend, um, and there, there are a number of reasons when you point to their roster to think that might be the case. One of them, in theory, is Mike Pelfrey. However, uh, I was surprised to look over his uh, final line uh, from his most recent start. I guess his only start of the season, uh, which was the ninth, um, in which somehow. He struck out eight while walking only one, and then got a crazy number of fly of uh, ground balls. Uh, he's always skewed slightly uh, ground ball, uh, mm-hmm. slightly towards the direction of being a ground ball pitcher. But it was essentially—I mean, it was probably one of the most dominant starts of his career. Did he did he look that good? Um. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 take, you know, strip all the context out, and again, it's hard, right? Because I'm a little bit biased. I've been, you know, watching. Mike Pelfrey for a number of years, and you know, frustration. Um, you know, you've seen the, you've seen flashes from Pelfrey where he's very good, and then flashes where he's just got awful, and you want to pull your hair out. Um, but just with that start, he, he did look really good. Um, it, I mean, he was throwing harder than he has lately. It seemed like. I mean, you know, maybe the, you know, I don't know what the I didn't look at the pitch effects data, but during the game, um, you know, he was you know he. He was throwing harder than I think people had seen him really throwing in you know, the last year and recent years. Um, he had a lot of good you know, action in the sinker. Um, he was getting a lot of these ground balls. I mean, overall, yes, I think he looked good. Um, I, I think it's just hard for anyone at this point, especially Mets fans, to get excited about Pelfrey after that start because there's been so many, so many times where he's done that, and then you know the next five or six starts. They look nothing like that. Yeah, I think so, uh, Royals, yeah. Fan, Royals fans have maybe a similar thing with Luke Hochaver. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think you're right. Hochaver is a pitcher who, and of course because of his pedigree and as a uh, first overall pick, and I, I think um, Pelfrey wasn't a first overall, but he he was a high draft pick. 
Uh, it's that same idea yeah. where you're always expecting that the next star could be a breakout, and then when you finally, um, when he finally does put together a dominant start, and you see sort of all th- aspects of his game going, um, I guess there's more reason to believe with that sort of a pitcher that it could be a turning point. But you're right; you've had what five, six years of Pelfrey. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, you've had you've had a number of years, and I remember also I have trying to remember it was two, it was three years ago. He had that phenomenal first half. He he came out of the gate and was just tremendous for basically half a year. And you know, even the most skeptical of Mets fans, I think, said, "Well, this you know he he can't go half a year and have it just be a fluke, can he?" And of course, he did. Um, so I, I I think there's been a you know there's sort of the, you know, once bitten twice shy. We've been, we've been bitten quite a bit at this point, so we're we're very skeptical. And probably rab- you probably have rabies but, now too, just with the degree to which yeah. you've been bitten. You <laughs> yeah. might actually you might want to get that checked out, Bill Petty. Uh, I I should be getting a tetanus shot, um, as as I think most Mets fans probably should. Um, but yeah, I think most people are going to be skeptical of, of Pelfrey um, putting together a really uh, you know an above average year relative to what he's been doing, because like you said. Every you know, it's been a number of years where we're kind of like waiting, saying, "Well, this could be the year. This could be," the, and it just never turned out to be the case. And he's, and I and again, I looked at this in some of this you know, this consistency research. He he generally has been one of the more consistent pitchers year in year out in terms of um, how he performs game to game relative to what his yearly average is. So he's been he's a very consistent guy. The problem is is that he's consistently mediocre to bad. Right. right? So. It's not even like you're getting these really, really, these volatile, so you get these really, really good performances, but then he blows up every other start, which probably would be better. He's just, he's pretty consistent, and that's why I think most people at this point say he is what he is, um, and that's just, you know, he's a, and that is a below average major league starter, right. and we kind of have to just accept that. Now, um We'll make this the the last uh, uh, brief topic of conversation here. Uh, You mentioned how sometimes it's hard to see um, players on your own team. You know, it's hard to put aside those biases, and so they can make you – it could be a negative bias where you've seen a lot of a player and you refuse to believe he could change. Um, Or perhaps on the other hand, uh, you might have uh, higher feelings about a player. I saw a lot of – or at least a number of people espousing the – um, the virtues of Ruben Tejada on Twitter yesterday. Uh, Ruben Tejada is now, of course, the starting shortstop uh, for the Mets in the, in the wake of Jose Reyes's departure to a division rival. I guess they're now technically a rival. Probably will have a better se- a better season than the Mets, uh, the Miami Marlins. Uh, Reyes to the Marlins. So now Tejada is there, uh, and yet he seems to have cobbled together. Um, some at least positive signs um, through the first uh, six games here of the season, uh, at least in terms of being able to make contact and getting on base. It, but, uh, I mean, Tejada, by the end of the season, though, is, is he going to be the same Tejada we're seeing right now? I'd have to say probably not, but I don't think he has to be. Um, yeah, he, he, he was a guy that when he came through the system, you know, he, he, he was the the stereotypical you know, I think shortstop, right? Great glove, um, quick, quick runner. You know, the guy who could potentially steal you some bases, do some good things as a base runner. But you know, light, light stick. He's not going to hit that well. Um, and like a lot of young hitters, he was, you know, he was impatient. He didn't show that he had 
a tremendous eye and didn't work didn't work really deeply into counts, and so you weren't sure, you know, could he can he hit enough to be an everyday major league shortstop? Um, he showed some good things last year. I mean, he's gotten some opportunities the last year, year and a half with, you know, the <laughs> and that's penchant for injuries. Um, you know, Jose Reyes, of course, being you know a guy who you know spent some time with the DL. So you, you saw some flashes, and you thought, well, defensively, yeah, this, he could absolutely be um, an above-average shortstop. Uh, you know, in the majors, um, but how much is he going to hit? Um, I, you know, I think he'll probably be. He could probably be um, if he was a you know average to a little bit above-average hitter at shortstop this year. I wouldn't be shocked. I think the thing that to me was more encouraging, we'll see if he keeps it up, um, is the plate discipline, is how much he's working counts and how much deeper into counts he's working so far um, in this, you know, this, you know, six games in the season, but you saw flashes of this in spring training. Um, and he's a younger player, so if he's going to make any changes to his discipline, it's going to be now. It's not going to be five years from now. That's also one of those stats that you know, tends to stabilize pretty quickly. And you know, once a player settles into a certain level of play discipline, that's pretty much going to be it going forward. Um, I think, you know, last year, I actually looked this up, I think he was, he saw an average of about 3.8 pitches per plate appearance last year, and that he was, he was basically Jimmy Rollins in terms of how patient he was. And that was like 159th out of 200 and whatever, 60 players with more than 300 plate appearances last year. So he wasn't, you know, this guy that, you know, was had a light stick but was finding other ways to get on base or giving you signs that, you know, he's going to be a guy who can work the count and, and find other ways to create runs. So I, I'm, I am encouraged. I think there's evidence that maybe there has been a change. We know that, you know, Dave Hudgens has been working with, the, with these hitters the last couple of years on this issue of patience, um, on working the count more. So, you know, is he a guy that's going to, you know, slug a lot? I doubt it. Um, but I think he can be basically a, you know, an average to above average hitter. And then, you know, if, if this plate discipline is for real, um, you know, that's a big thing. I mean, he could be a very, very good shortstop going forward, given his defense, if, if this can stick. So I wouldn't be too surprised. Um, I don't think he's going to be a world beater offensively, but I don't think he has to be. So, I, you know, I, I like Tahad. I think it's, it'll be nice to see what he does. Well, Bill Petty, I, w- I want to, uh, first of all, invite you to some um, tea and conversation um, after we're done recording. Um, but for the for the moment, uh, I'd like to, to thank you for participating in this uh, episode of Fangraphs Audio. No, I, I, I would enjoy some, some tea and crumpets um, yeah. and some conversation. That would be nice. But, uh, yeah, no, this, is, uh, this has been great, and hopefully for at least one or two listeners, mildly uh, entertaining. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we have uh, at least... Five or seven listeners, so I think that would be fine. Um, yeah. Hey, listen, uh, that is uh, Bill Petty. I would like to thank him for joining us. I am and will continue to be Carson Sestuli, another uh, Italian American, and this has been another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.